Hey guys, I'm Jess. And I'm Cece. Welcome to Myth and Macabre, where we dive into the world of the paranormal, supernatural, and everything creepy in between. In today's episode, join us while we take a look at the Bennington Triangle. Enjoy! When we talk about spooky and unexplained triangles, we are usually referring to the famous Bermuda Triangle, a place where ships sink, planes go missing, and people disappear, never to be seen or heard from again. Well, lucky for us, we have our very own spooky triangles right here in New England. Yay! There's the Bridgewater Triangle of Massachusetts and the Bennington Triangle of Vermont. Today, we will dive into the mysteries and the legends of a certain spooky mountain and the surrounding areas located in southwestern Vermont. I'm really excited about this one. I'm going to be completely honest. Until you brought this up, I was like, I've never even heard of this. And I know we've talked a little bit about it prior to this recording, and I'm like really excited to dive into it because there's some really neat stuff, I think, going on there. There is some very, very neat stuff going on there. So we're going to start with a brief history. So the Bennington Triangle is a mountainous area of southwestern Vermont in and around the city of Bennington and um, surrounding the Glastonbury Mountain. So the area was first referred to as the Bennington Triangle when a radio broadcaster named Joseph A. Citro used it on air in 1992. Before that, I guess it was just the spooky area. I mean, yeah, it sounds like from what we've talked about prior to recording that it has a history of being really spooky, even though it sounds like the name was coined relatively recently. I said that like it's still the 90s because for some reason the 90s were like three days ago in my head. Not 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I realized that after I started talking about not relatively long ago. Dislike. (laughs) (laughs) I am old. (laughs) So this man that first used this term on air in 1992, 30 years ago. Actually, it's exactly 30 years ago because it's... It is exactly 30 years ago. Ah. I don't like it. Okay. So he is now the author of many books on New England folklore and legends, and I used a couple of his books for my research. Oh, that's cool. So it comes from the man himself. There have been reports of strange things happening for as long as anyone can remember. The native Abenaki tribe avoided the Glastonbury Mountain. They believed that it was cursed. They only went up the mountain to bury their dead. And how long ago are we talking with this? I mean, obviously... This was, like, before European settlers came over. Okay, so so we're even that far back. back. Okay. Yep. So they thought it was cursed. Don't know why they would bury their dead on a mountain that they thought was cursed, but I'm not a member of the Apaneki tribe, so I... Maybe this is why uh, Native American graveyards have such a bad rap. Maybe it's a place that they, like, bury their dead, and they're like, we don't want to go there. That's where all the dead things are. Yeah, I don't know, because it didn't say anything about them, like like visiting them like we do now. So I think they kind of just buried them, left them on the mountain and called it a day. Interesting. Yeah. So when the European settlers began taking over the land, they started reporting mysterious lights, strange sounds. They couldn't decipher where the sounds were coming from. They were smelling things that they couldn't identify. And they saw creatures lurking in the woods around their villages. So that's not creepy at all. And this is like way back before there would even be written reports of this stuff. Yeah, like, there was, like, reports in people's journals and stuff, but it was, like, when the first settlers came over. I can't tell you how excited I am that we have, like, a haunted and spooky spot that's been that way and has a reputation, like, well before anything else I think we're even talking about this season. I know. I love it. It's exciting. Actually, 
I think my next episode is, is kind of far back like that. Nice. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. I don't know. Apparently, I like the way back episodes. Way back uh, yeah. I mean, you like things really old, and I like things based on movies. So I guess it works pretty well. It's fine. So the settlers that first came to the area, they settled in a small town that they called Glastonbury in about 1791. It originally had a population of 34 residents that belonged to six families. And it became officially organized or incorporated in 1834 so there was people living there and calling it a town like before it was incorporated so i guess it was a village at that point makes sense i feel like that's kind of especially when we're talking about kind of early america that's probably how a lot of cities came to be incorporated yeah so there wasn't a huge permanent population Uh, many of the people that were in the town were just passing through and they were considered jobbers which is basically someone that is coming through town just to get some work and get some money and then once they get that they're gonna move on to the next town and the next job the town was known for its hands-on laborers and hands-on jobs such as tree harvesting sawmill work and blacksmith work i was just gonna say blacksmithery but that i don't think is a thing i would really like that to be a thing that sounds very cool (laughs) so it is probably just blacksmithing yes blacksmithing but blacksmithery is cool So in 1840, the Madison family moved to Glastonbury from Rhode Island. Shout out to Rhode Island. Um, And they became one of the town's first permanent residents. The patriarch, John, held many town offices, such as tax collector, school superintendent, constable, town clerk, and justice of the peace. So is this just a side effect of it being a small town that, like... He pretty much ran it, He's someone with influence, so he kind of just runs all, like, the major positions in town. Yeah. Pretty much. He pretty much had all, because those were just a few that he held. There were a lot more that he held that you can read in the books that I read that we'll put in the show notes. Perfect. Um, In 1872, the Bennington-Glastonbury Railroad was built, and the purpose of this railway was to transport timber from the areas it was being cut down for distribution. So I think they were taking the timber from Glastonbury into Bennington, which was the bigger city, and then spreading it out from there. Okay. The engineers that worked on this project were not at all supportive because of the elevation and the topography of the land. In Glastonbury? In like, yeah, the Glastonbury. It was more on the Glastonbury side, I think. I don't think they were super concerned about Bennington, but Glastonbury is kind of like up on the mountain. So it's like not great. Makes sense. It was probably like a pain in the butt to get the whole thing built and operating and... yeah. Even though the engineers were not a huge fan of this project, the railway was built anyway because people don't listen to professionals, is apparently. (laughs) I like how that's exactly like the first place you went. Obviously, this didn't work because somebody didn't listen to the pros. Uh, I feel like this is a running theme in America, but uh, that's that's another, another episode. It's another topic of discussion. Due in part to the building of the railway, Glastonbury was at the height of its success in the 1880s, and they had a permanent population at that time of about 241. This wasn't including... People. That's not like 241,000. That's like 241 people. people. Individuals, yes. The census didn't include those jobbers that were just in town. um, Which makes sense if they're just like people passing through. So there were a lot more people in the town. It was the permanent population was 241. Unfortunately, the good times wouldn't last very long for Glastonbury because, again, they didn't listen to the professionals. 
<laughs> Sorry, the throat clearing at the end of that just like sealed the deal on that one. <laughs> yeah. In 1888, a blizzard came through and cut off access to the town for three months. That's a really long time to be cut off just because of like a blizzard. Right. I mean, I know we live in New England. We get blizzards most years. We have like at least one kind of bad one. I would assume in Vermont in the mountains, it's even worse than it is, you know, in eastern Massachusetts or Rhode Island. But to be cut off for three months is like a really long time to be cut off. Especially in that time. Yeah. Yeah. In that time when like you depended, like there wasn't, there weren't other ways of transportation. Like you had to just walk through the snow. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm wondering if it's one of those where like you get a blizzard, it blocks everything off. A week later you get more snow, then you get more snow on top of it. Like you're pretty much stranded till spring, right? Like, yeah. So, I mean, it may have been something like that. It may have just been the one. I don't know. Anyway, they they had no access to anything for three months. That's and nuts. nobody had access <laughs> to them for three months. So this led to um, the official closure of the Bennington-Glastonbury Railway in early 1889. Listen so to did that. something happen to the rail? Like, was it damaged from the snow, do we know? Or it were they just really, like, this isn't doing anything for us, we're done? It didn't really say. Um, I, I want to say that it was probably a combination of all of it. Like, it was probably damaged from the snow, because if it was a bad enough snowstorm to block access for three months, I'm sure it must have done something to the either the cars or the railway or something. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> don't then, know for certain, but logically that yeah, makes sense. Makes yeah. Sense. Um, and then also, like, if you're not using it for three months, like, it's not doing you any good. So yeah, you found other ways to to do what you need to do. Well, it doesn't sound like they did. They seemed pretty locked off, but I was talking I more like mean. Bennington, like Bennington found oh, more oh, ways to yes. acquire timber. <laughs> yes. Bennington was like, we don't really need those people. No, we don't, <laughs> we don't really them. need Glastonbury. <laughs> no, they can just be themselves. So then the next tragedy that hit the town, because this is a running theme in Glastonbury is tragedy. It sounds like it's like straight out of some kind of horror novel. Like, it's a town built on a haunted mountain or a cursed mountain, so I would expect no less. <laughs> <laughs> so on the first day of deer hunting season in 1897, a man named John Harbour was shot and killed. It was presumed that it was an accidental shooting. They thought that someone maybe thought that he was a deer in the woods and mistook him for the deer and, you know, shot. I mean, there have been more bizarre hunting accidents. That doesn't feel particularly too far beyond what could be realistic it doesn't until we go a little further i personally find this hard to believe that it was an accidental shooter because this person never came forward i feel like if i accidentally shot someone i i would probably panic at first but i i would maybe tell someone right or i'd be like hey this was an honest accident i am so sorry about what i did like please put the cuffs on i'll go to jail it's fine so this accidental shooter he never came forward and He also went through, or she, because we don't discriminate here. And we Um, don't know who it was. (laughs) We don't. So this person went through the trouble of dragging John's body through the woods. Like, he didn't just, like, accidentally shoot him and leave him there. Mm, That sounds much less accidental (laughs) if the body was then moved. And then when he dragged it to a spot that he was comfortable with, he laid him down. So he, like, carefully, it was stated that he carefully laid him down with his rifle. So he put his rifle next to him. And then he covered his body with a hemlock limb. So this, to me, looks like he's trying to hide it. Which I mean, it either that or this was his idea of, like, a pseudo-burial. But he, that doesn't really sound like it lines no. up. 
No. Super sketchy. Super I sketchy. I shot a person, then I moved him and, like, staged a whole viewing or lack thereof, I guess, yeah. if he's trying to hide it. But, like, that's he, weird. He did such, he or she did such a good job hiding this body, it took the search party several days to locate it. And now I need to look up what hemlock branches look like because that's, wow. I mean, maybe he just, like, made, like, a mound over him or something. Yeah. But I'm not sure. That but feels like... Not an accident. A little sketchy, yeah. And then to not tell anybody, I guess, at least if it was an accident, even if you moved the body and you tried to give him some kind of burial under these branches, if you weren't actually hiding his body, you'd mm-hmm. think you would go back into town and be like, I am so sorry, there has been a hunting accident, I accidentally shot and killed this guy, but don't worry, I like buried his body and gave him a nice burial, I'm so sorry. Not like, we never speak of this again. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, it's suspicious suspicious strange so after this happened and was never solved investors for some reason thought that they should try to bring tourism to glastonbury so now we have like a town that's been cut off for three months and uh very suspicious quote-unquote accidental shooting yeah but that's like been a little while right like things happen in towns that are weird and i could see the like Chamber of Commerce being like, we need to bring in money. Let's get some tourists in here. Yeah, except it wasn't a long time. It was the same year. Oh. In 1897. Okay, but like the cutting off was a few years before, right? Like, Yeah. So it had been a little bit like, okay, they're so mysterious death in the woods. Tourists can still come here. <laughs> I think it sounds all right. Okay. <laughs> so between 1897 and 1898, the investors spent what would be worth $300,000 in today's money. I don't know exactly what it was back then because it didn't say it just gave me today's money and I didn't do the calculations. So they spent it in an attempt to revive the town and rebrand it as a vacation spot. So they built a hotel and they had a pond that was filled with local fish for fishing adventures. They built a casino, a dining hall, and all these other things. This sounds kind of nice. It I mean, sounds I wonderful. Would go to a little idyllic hotel in the middle of the mountains and hang out, says the person that toured the Stanley on the day they got married. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would take a hotel in a spooky area any day. Same. But unfortunately, it didn't work out for them. <laughs> Because nothing works out in the town of Glastonbury. <laughs> they kicked it off in the summer of 1898, and it was a huge success. But that was until a flood came through and cut off access to the town again. So two things here. A, I'm, I'm very impressed that they managed to get all this done in, what, a year, it yes. sounds like? Between, yeah. like, they decided to do it and they got it done. Yeah. Kudos to them. But, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear now that they... Got cut off again. That seems to be the MO for Glastonbury. Yes. So they're cut off again. They can't recover from that. They had already put pretty much everything they had into making this, so they can't really repair it at this point. The town continues as like a working class town with, you know, its minimal residents, its permanent residents. Some people come through as jobbers. One such jobber was a man named John Crowley. And on April 4th, 1892... He uh, was murdered. You know, at this point, I'm not surprised. <laughs> no. He had gone out for a night of drinking. He was a mill worker and another mill worker. I don't know if they were friendly or like they just both happened to work at the mill. But either way. Um, In a town where people come and go, I guess it could go either way. Right. So the other mill worker, Henry McDowell, who also went by William Conroy, uh, they got into an argument at the bar. They ended up 
you know, physically fighting and McDowell hit Crowley with a piece of firewood. And that's essentially what killed him. So, wow. <clears throat> so you got killed by a man with two names. Do we know if the gentleman with two names was a permanent resident of the town or was he a jobber as well? He, it, I don't think it said, but I want to say that he was a, like a, a jobber passing through as well because he immediately fled to Canada by train. Okay, <laughs> that not... makes the two-name thing feel like it makes more sense. Yeah. I was thinking, like, why would a resident of this town be like, well, I go by this name, and I also go by this name. That felt really suspicious, but if he's, like, someone passing through... Yeah, I think he was that another makes pass- more sense passerby. Passerby. So he gets on a train, he flees to Canada. For some reason, he decides that he's going to return to the United States and turn himself in in South Norwalk, Connecticut, and... Not where he committed the crime, but okay. Like in recent times, or did he have like 30 years to think about it and then was like, maybe I'll go confess for that thing I did when it was a while back? It was fairly recent. It didn't give the exact year, but it didn't It didn't sound to me like there was a large span of time. Okay. So he goes, somehow he ends up in Connecticut and just decides to turn himself in. He was sentenced to life in prison and was set to serve his sentence at the Vermont State Asylum, which sounded weird to me don't know why he's in an asylum for a murder unless he like pled some kind of temporary insanity or something yeah um i did not go down the newspaper's rabbit hole with this one (laughs) makes sense that feels like it could be almost its own episode (laughs) yeah so he's in the asylum they let him work around the property and for some reason they let him fill the coal cars for the railroad now, just keep in mind, he, he escaped America on a train, and now they're letting this man fill coal cars on trains. This feels like a great idea. It's not. I had a feeling. <laughs> so he takes this opportunity. He hides under a load of coal that's being shipped out, and he escaped, and they never found him. So. I mean, surprise, surprise at that point. Like, shame on you, fool me once. <laughs> how does that? I don't know how that phrase goes. But, yeah, I mean, somebody should have seen that coming. Yes. Because, you know, the man that ran from a murder scene to another country is able to work with trains at the asylum. Yeah, that's not a smart idea. It's not. Is the Vermont Asylum near Bennington or Glastonbury in any capacity? Do we know? I don't actually know. Let's look that up. I'm mostly just curious. Pause, please. Okay. So we just looked it up. And the Vermont Asylum is not near Bennington or Glastonbury. It is in Brattleboro. It actually still stands today as I think they call it the Vermont Retreat Center now or Brattleboro Retreat. I didn't look too far into it, but it's supposedly haunted. So maybe we'll do an episode on that. That would be very cool. I mostly just asked because I was wondering if this was still kind of something that happened within the confines of the Bennington Triangle or if the only connection was just that this guy had killed somebody else in Glastonbury. Yeah, no, that was it. He just killed someone there and then was sent somewhere else and decided to escape. On to the next thing. So by the 1930s, Glastonbury's population dropped to seven. Single digits. Single digits. Seven. Seven people. Five of these seven people were from the original Madison family that had populated it from Rhode Island. So this guy's just holding strong. He's like, everybody else can leave, but this is our town. Right. The other two residents were a couple... Uh, named the Hazards, and they were also from Rhode Island. Don't know why Rhode Islanders love Vermont so much. I, I mean, did I, I or did I not have a conversation about potentially retiring in my old age to Vermont recently? As someone who is from Rhode Island, yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, I think it might just be a thing. Okay. I also wouldn't be surprised <clears throat> if they were maybe like 
families that knew each other in Rhode Island and when one moved and was like, I have this great opportunity for this town in Vermont, come with me. It could be, um, but the Hazards were only seasonal residents of Glastonbury, so they had like a home there and everything, but they weren't there year round. So oh, okay. They were considered a part of the population, but because there were bulk up those numbers. <laughs> really only five people there year round. <laughs> In 1937, the town was officially unincorporated, so it's no longer a town now. What happens to a town when it becomes unincorporated? Does it become, like, public domain of the state? That's not the correct It's not. I think I know what you're trying to say, and I believe that... Eminent domain. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I believe that that is probably what happens to it. I honestly did not look that far into it. But it's unincorporated, and then by 1950, the only resident left, so... I mean, you can't really call it a resident if it's not a town, but the only resident left was a man named Clyde Elwell. His home was technically on the outside of the town limits. So he wasn't ever considered in the seven. So he was not considered in the seven. The only reason they really considered him a resident at all is because he didn't spend much time at home. He spent most of his time in the Glastonbury area. He okay. was a World War One veteran with untreated PTSD and he eventually became known as the Dog Man of Glastonbury. Which sounds like the name of a horror movie. It does, but it's actually kind of sad. It's, it's, not, it's not a spooky story. It's a sad story. Oh. So basically, he pretty much took in any dog that he came across, and he isolated himself with them in the abandoned town. So it was basically him and all these dogs that he just accumulated. Oh. The dogs he took were mostly unlicensed, unvaccinated, and unfixed. So just like stray dogs. <clears throat> so stray dogs. Clyde got very ill in 1958 and the state police had to be called in to to take him out because of his illness uh i don't know if he was like refusing or was too sick to to ask for help on his own but they ended up needing to kill a lot of the dogs just to get in to the city limits and rescue him oh that's a really sad story it could also be a horror movie I mean, I've got it churning in the back of my head. Right? (laughs) But no, this particular story is very sad. So that is the story of Clyde. So is that kind of like, by now Glastonbury has been unincorporated. At some point, it's basically a town overrun by stray dogs that this guy keeps. What happens after? It just becomes... A ghost town at that point. Just that's, surrounded by like creepy lore and legends. That's what it is now. Just a ghost that's town hanging awesome. out. We'll get to what it, what they call the land now. Anyway, so while Glastonbury, they've seen obviously a ton of tragedy and unfortunate events. Um, I just want to end the story of Glastonbury on a happy note because I like happy things sometimes. <laughs> so sometime after World War II, uh, doctors Richard and Edith Sturba purchased some land um, from the Hazard family. So it was the two of the seven that were remaining in the 30s. The uh, like snowbirds. The snowbirds. Or sunbirds. Cause, Same difference. <laughs> because Florida <laughs> is the other direction. So the Sturbas had escaped from a Nazi invasion in Vienna and they moved to Michigan. They were both psychoanalysts who had trained with Freud, and they both taught in Michigan during the school year. But for 40 years, they spent their summers in Glastonbury. In, like, their little shack, it had, like, no insulation or anything. It was kind of just, like, them. It's like camping, basically. Pretty much. It's glamping without an RV. (laughs) Not even a really nice cabin. (laughs) Not really. So they would make the trip every year 
from Michigan to Glastonbury. They would bring their horses, their art supplies, and their musical instruments, and they would just spend the summer hanging out. I mean, that sounds kind of idyllic, honestly. Like, we're just going to go into the middle of the mountains by ourselves, do our creative stuff. Yeah, that doesn't sound terrible. Sounds like they probably also maybe did magic mushrooms. That is 100% speculation, though. I mean, I would hope not because... My next sentence is, oh, goodness, they would also bring a few of their patients that they cared for that they believed would not do well with interrupted treatment. So they might edit my comment (laughs) out. (laughs) No, you can keep it. It's fine. (laughs) So, yeah, so they brought their they had some patients that they thought, you know, wouldn't do well with an interruption of their treatment. So they would bring them on these like summer retreats with them, which is sweet. And I I mean, it kind of. Does that smack a little bit of lad school? Maybe a touch. But at the end of the day, I think that that really is like, that that sounds nice. Yeah. I don't get like a lad school vibe from them. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. I think that they were sweet people. I mean, they escaped Nazi Germany, so I don't think that they're not, not Germany, Vienna. Is Vienna in Germany? Where's Vienna? Isn't Vienna in Austria? Is it? I don't know. They escaped the Nazis. They escaped Vienna. (laughs) Um, Wherever that is. So I I would hope that they, you know, weren't Dr. What's that doctor's name? Lad. No. (laughs) The the German doctor that did the things on twins, the experiments. Oh, goodness. I have no idea. That sounds like American Horror Story. Uh, I think they based American Horror Story off him. I don't remember his name, but I don't get those vibes from them. I think that they were. They were nice doctors. Okay. Good to know. So the majority of Glastonbury's land is now part of the Green Mountain National Forest. I believe, if I remember correctly from my research, that, you know, some of the old abandoned buildings are still standing and it's like considered a ghost town, but it's technically part of the Green Mountain National Forest. So it's kind of been absorbed by the state. Yes. So now we're going to head on back to the spookiness. Now that we got that nice, sweet little story out of the way. Yay, I love the spookiness. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. So we're going to go back to spooky town with the Bennington monster. How far back in time are we going? Which Back to the 1800s. Oh, okay. Yeah, early 1800s. All right. So not that far back. So we gave you the history. Now we're jumping into the spooky stuff. The mystery. <laughs> we gave you the history, and now we're giving you the mystery. Okay. I need to stop. Okay. We're having a goofy day. It's dreary and rainy out. It is, yeah. It's my favorite kind of day. So in the early 1800s, there was a stagecoach. It was traveling up Glastonbury Mountain when they found themselves in a massive rainstorm because themes. Glastonbury (laughs) seems to really be a meteorological hotspot. Yeah. So the rainstorm destroyed a section of the road they were traveling (laughs) because this is what happens. Glastonbury, Uh, unreliable roads. Right. The driver was forced to stop, and when he stopped, he got an uneasy feeling that was confirmed by the horses. They started getting really anxious when he stopped, so he decided he was going to check out the area, make sure that you know him and his horses and his four passengers were safe enough in their current situation uh, that they didn't feel like they needed to to run. <laughs> I guess. All right. To retreat, I guess. To retreat. He probably couldn't go any further forward. Right. So what he found was in the muddy road before him, a huge footprint or footprints, I guess. Like humanoid footprint? Are we talking like dinosaur footprint? Like (laughs) He described them as unlike anything he had ever seen before. So he concluded that they must be recent also because with the the weather the way that it was and the mud i guess consistency like the rain hadn't washed it away yet right kind of thing yeah so like no prince would be able to withstand that amount of rain in that 
area with that mud density or what I don't know I'm not a scientist I mean neither was he it sounds (laughs) like so he called for the male passengers in the car to come and help him because he wanted to kind of figure out what was going on and see if maybe they had seen anything like it before and they knew what was going on as the male passengers were stepping out of the carriage something from the woods came rushing out and it flipped over the stagecoach with like the women still in it yes Ah. so Everyone, I guess, eventually gets out and they look up and they see this huge figure watching them with glowing eyes from the woods. Not creepy at all. I'm super intrigued. Do we know, like, is this like a Mothman figure? Is this a Jersey Devil figure? Is this Bigfoot? Is it humanoid? I have so many questions. We'll get there. I'm excited. Okay. So they see the big glowing eyes and then all of a sudden the creature roars and just runs off into the forest. And just leaves them. And that's about that. I I guess eventually the rain stopped and they made it where they were going, where they just turned around. It doesn't really say. That was kind of the end of the story. But that's like the first, is this like the first recorded sighting of? Yes, of the Bennington monster. Okay, I was going to ask if it had a name. The Bennington monster. That's what we're calling it. Um, So the next sighting, well, not the next sighting, but over the next 200 years, there were sporadic sightings until 2003 when there were four separate individual reports of a bigfoot like monster along route 7 near bennington is route 7 the same road that the stagecoach was on or that would later become like the same area or the stagecoach was going up the glastonbury mountain so i want to say no okay but i think it's still the same like it's within it falls within the bennington triangles limits yeah so like if i were a bigfoot this would be like my backyard right They all described this creature as being over six feet tall, about 270 pounds, covered completely in black hair with a brown face, a tail, and walking upright on two legs. So these are four separate people seeing it at four separate times with the same descriptions. Uh, There was a man... These people don't have any, like, connection to each other. Not that was discussed anywhere that I could see. Okay, that's awesome. It is. And terrifying. There was a local man named Michael Green. He was known to be a, like a jokester and he would like play pranks on his friends. Some people started suggesting that maybe he put on a gorilla suit and went running through the woods to scare his friends. Were any of the people that had <clears throat> the sightings his friends? I don't think so. I think people were kind of just like, hey, that's something Mike would do. <laughs> maybe okay. it was Mike. And then it kind of just turned into a thing. So I personally don't believe that. He was an experienced hunter and outdoorsman, and I can't really see someone experienced with, you know, hunting weapons, running around the woods all willy-nilly trying to scare his friends, because that's, you're just asking to get shot. Like dressed in fur. Yeah, <laughs> like dressed in I fur. Mean, that doesn't sound like the smartest idea. So yeah, I feel like an avid outdoorsman like him would know not to do that even if he was trying to do it as a prank like i feel like he would probably do it like in someone's house like dress up in the basement and run upstairs yeah or or like you know (laughs) stick your face outside like the window or something yeah but but not like running all through the woods all right so (laughs) that is the bennington monster we still have Have there been any sightings since the early 2000s that you know of not that i know of so just like one year he was like out of hibernation lots of sightings and it's kind of died down again as far as I know, I honestly didn't look too much further past that because, um, again, I didn't want to go down a newspaper's rabbit hole because this episode would turn into like four hours. Understandable. <laughs> because I can certainly get lost on newspapers.com. So the next part of this 
wonderful area that we're going to talk about is mysterious disappearances. My favorite. We need to put it out there. I love mysterious disappearances more than a person should. I'm, I'm with you there. I do love a mysterious disappearance. So what have we got? So we're going to go back in time just a little bit. To, still in the 1900s, but we're going back from the 2000s. These mysterious disappearances happened mostly between 1945 and 1950. They were on and around the Glastonbury Mountain area. And it is also worth noting that the majority of the disappearances happened between September and December of those years. So cold weather months. Yes. So the burrs, as I fondly refer to them. (laughs) So that'll come back a little bit later after we talk about them. So the first one we're going to talk about is a 70-year-old man named Mitty Rivers, which I love that name. He just sounds like a cute old man. He really does. He worked as a hunting and fishing guide on the Vermont mountains. And by all accounts, he was in great health for being 74 years old. On November 12th of 1945, he and his son-in-law took a group of four up to Bickford Hollow, which is an area just off the Long Trail, which is a trail on the Glastonbury Mountain that is going to come back into play. Okay. With some of these other stories. Long Trail. <laughs> long important trail. trail. It's, not, it's not a long trail. It's literally called the Long Trail. So on their way back to camp, Mitty ended up getting separated from the group. He got a little bit ahead of them. And the group wasn't really concerned. He was familiar with the area. They had the son-in-law there who was working with him. So they were like, we'll just see him back at camp. It sounds like everything about this trip, at least up until this point, sounds like it was above board going normally. Yes. Um, He was very familiar with the area because he worked as a guide. When he failed to return to camp by nightfall, though, uh, the party got worried. So... Again, he was very familiar with the area. He's a hunter, a fisher. He hikes out there, goes out alone. He goes out in groups. Like, It sounds like there's very no reasonable slick. expectation that he would get lost. Right, yeah, there's no reason he would get lost. So I now they're starting to think, like, well, is he hurt? Like, what happened? Is he okay? So they, I guess, call it in or go ask for assistance. And a massive search ensues, and it consists of over 300 locals and soldiers that were brought in from Fort Devens, Massachusetts. This search party spent eight days combing the area and they never found a thing. Like nothing. Not like he went off the path to go take a pee and tripped and broke his ankle and just couldn't get up and then maybe died of the elements. Like nothing at all. Nope. So to this day, we have no body, no evidence, no sightings, nothing. Not a single thing. It's as if he just like walked ahead of the group around the bend and into another dimension. Another I love that that's the first place that, that is your the brain first goes. Place that my brain obviously, goes. he's in another dimension where I'm like, he probably tripped and died. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you would think, I'm assuming that the, the group from Fort Devons was probably not particularly small. And to have no sign, yeah, and they were no like, here's where he dropped his water bottle. I have no idea. No, I, don't know. I don't hike much. No. And um, it was also the 40s. So I don't know if hiking in the 40s was the same as hiking now. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Not a single thing. They found huh. nothing. Over eight days of searching. Craziness. Yeah. So the next one we're going to talk about is going to be Paula Weldon. She's an 18-year-old sophomore at Bennington College. She decided on December 1st of 1946 that she wanted to go for a hike on the Long Trail. In December. What an adventurous person. Right? I'm confused. but I feel like there would even be snow at that point. Like, I mean, maybe there wasn't, but it's December in New England. Or maybe she wanted to hike in the snow. I have no idea. 
I don't know why anyone wants to go hiking to begin with, but that's just me. Yeah, she sounds very adventurous. So she was last seen by a gas station attendant around 2.30, walking off the college campus. I believe from what I read that he knew it was her because he was a college student and like either they had a class together, they were like friendly or something. Okay. Um, like a confirmed sighting of her. So it was 2.30, walking off campus. Also, That's it's December. When she decides she's going to go hiking. I was just going to say, also, it's December and you're leaving to go hiking at 2.30. That's weird. Yeah, it's going to be dark by like 4.30. Yeah. So at 2.45, a man named Lewis Knapp came driving by and he picked her up and drove her as far as his house, which was about three miles from where she was headed. So like, is there any reports? Like, was she, did she look like she was prepared to go hiking in the woods at night in December or like... Um, she, she was wearing a bright red jacket, which we're going to get to. Okay. That doesn't give me a ton of confidence. But I think that's about it. Uh, no. I don't think she might've had like a backpack with some supplies, but I don't think she planned on being out there very long. Okay. Um, and also as far as the hitchhiking goes, it's the forties. Hitchhiking is like completely normal. It's not just some weird creep. It could have been a weird creep picking her up, but it wasn't a weird creep picking her up. Is it super (laughs) weird that like my brain totally just jumped over the hitchhiking part and was like, but she's hiking late afternoon (laughs) in December. It might be a little weird. Hitchhiking is not okay. Don't hitchhike. Don't do that. So she made it, she definitely made it to the trail. She was last seen by a man named Ernest Whitman at four o'clock. And he remembered her. Heading out onto the trail at four o'clock. She was on the trail at this point. I don't know how far into the trail, but it was like, I think it was near a camp that he was kind of like staying at. Okay. So it was like somewhere on the trail. So for anybody listening who's not familiar with winters in New England, by four o'clock, the sun is starting to set. Yes. In December, not in December. the rest of the year. But <laughs> in December, by four o'clock, the sun is starting to go down. I'm assuming the temperature is starting to drop. Like, nothing about that is something you would want to be out hiking in unless you were prepared to do a nighttime hike in the winter and were an experienced hiker. Yeah. It's weird. The whole thing's weird. But Ernest remembers her specifically because of the bright red jacket that she was wearing and they also stopped and had a conversation she stopped and asked him about the length of the trail she got on a trail called long trail and then asked how long it was and also in december at four o'clock you're on a trail that you don't know how long it is still yeah right now that should you should turn around and head back to home because you are obviously in over your head yes so december 2nd comes around the next day and paula doesn't show up to her classes which isn't like her So the college's director of admissions is actually the one that calls the state attorney and Paula's father. Not sure why he didn't call the police right away, but maybe college things. I don't know. Well, it could. Maybe I wonder if it was something like maybe they thought she went home. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Maybe. See, I don't think about these things. (laughs) This is why we need each other. (laughs) This is why we're a team. So a search party was organized that started on December 3rd. So now she's been missing for two days. And by December 4th, the search party had grown from 30 to 40 locals to almost 500 people. And this 500 included um, 120 members of the state guard and five aircrafts to do aerial searches. So this is a huge search. Yeah. And especially for what year are we talking again? 1946. Yeah. So to have like aerial searches and stuff, that's, that's obviously a situation that they're taking very seriously. Yes. They continued searching for her for, they started on the 3rd, so 12 days. Um, So almost two weeks, but they had to call the search off on December 15th. During the investigation... Did they have to call it... Do we know if they had to call it off because 
resources or was it like getting too cold or i think it was a combination um because i think i also read they picked it they didn't like pick it back up as like a like a formal search party but like there were people that went out after the winter okay um to like keep looking for her so during the investigation because even though they're not searching they're still investigating uh some of the girls in her dorm suggested that she used um this hike as a diversion to run away and start a new life Okay. But there's literally no other evidence to support that. Like, her roommate was like, no, she was happy. Her family was like, no, she was happy. So this wasn't like, (laughs) I'm going to go into the woods and let exposure take me. Or at least they didn't think that it was. No. and um, Like, it didn't sound like it seemed like like a nefarious hike. No, and she didn't want to, like, run away from her life and, like, start over somewhere. Like, it was just uh, girls that lived in the... Like, it wasn't even her roommates. It was just girls that lived in the same dorm as her. So kind of just speculation at that point. So that didn't really go too far. At one point, there was a $500 reward offered for anyone that gave information leading to finding her. And I know that $500 doesn't really sound like a lot by today's standards, but in 1946, that was worth $7,600 in today's money. Which, still not entirely humongous for a missing person, but I'm sure at the time was substantial. No, I mean, I feel like, I mean, I don't, I don't do a lot of missing person searches, but I see like five or ten, so it's kind of somewhere in the middle. Yeah, that's true. And her case actually led to the founding of the Vermont State Police, which was created seven months after she disappeared. This is maybe my like favorite fun fact about this entire tragedy was like, State there wasn't state police really happening in Vermont before this. Yeah, um, I think it was something because at first her father was satisfied with the work that the police did. And then a little bit later, he kind of came out and was like, you know, I don't really think that they did the most that they could. And it eventually led to, you know, the state police. Interesting. Because the state police, I guess, are supposed to step in when smaller counties are on. Um, what's the word I want? I don't know what the word you want is, but I know that I did. Inexperienced. Okay, I was going to say, I know that I went to college in a small town in New Hampshire, and, like, the police force was, like, two people, and I'm pretty sure it was voluntary. So, like, I wouldn't be surprised if in a smaller town like that where something goes wrong, they just kind of inherently call in what would now in Vermont be the state police, just because the, the area itself doesn't really have the manpower to do it. Yeah. But, yeah, so... I guess, thanks, Paula, for the state police. But unfortunately, similar to Mitty, uh, the one that we just talked about before, Paula, her body and her possessions have never been found. Including the red jacket that feels like a really standout, noteworthy kind of piece. No red jacket. Nothing. Not a single huh. thing. It's like, she walked off that trail into another dimension, because that's where my brain goes. <laughs> <laughs> you have portal fantasies over here. Listen... <laughs> Let me have my fantasies. <laughs> uh, the third person that's going to go missing is a man named John Tetford or Tedford, depending on the source, which I think that's weird that in the 1900s, we didn't actually know people's names. I mean, I wonder if it's a word of mouth thing like, oh, you know, what happened to Ted? Oh, what was Ted's last name? And then it just kind of it's yeah. New England. It depends on how you pronounce it, right? I guess. Yeah. But he did have family. So that's weird. Oh, that is Because <laughs> it, it was his family. <laughs> Anyway, so he was a 68-year-old man from Bennington, Vermont. He was visiting family in St. Albans, which I believe is up kind of near the Canadian border. On December 1st of 1949, I don't know if you 
remember that date, but it was exactly three years after Paula went missing, like to the day. Which is like kind of creepy, let's be honest. This one, this is the one I think that creeps me out the most out of all of these disappearances, because it's bizarre. So it's December 1st. His family in St. Albans is putting him on a bus um, to send him back home to Bennington because he's done with his visit. He's going home. The driver of the bus and multiple passengers confirmed that he got on the bus in St. Albans and he was in his seat up until the bus stop before Bennington. So his stop was Bennington. The one before that he was still on. So almost all the way. So almost all the way. But when the bus stopped at Bennington Station, he was gone. Did he like get off to pee at the stop before and just not get back on the bus? And everybody was like, he's been on the bus the whole time. He must have been there. Possibly. But no one recalls seeing him exit the bus. Like the passengers, like none of the passengers, the driver, his luggage was still there. His seat was not empty. (laughs) I mean, it was empty. He wasn't in his seat. But on his seat, there was an open um, bus timetable. Like he was checking the stops to kind of see like where he was on the way okay this is super creepy and nobody ever saw him again so So yeah i mean i guess if he did get off at the stop before and tried to pee and or had to pee and then by the time he came back out the bus was gone he might have called someone he might have tried to catch the next bus like Like, he would have found a friend (laughs) yeah there would have been some sign of him yeah so he seemingly disappeared from a moving vehicle and nobody saw it which is super creepy Wow. Yeah. So this one was a little harder to do, but they searched anyway. They kind of searched like along the bus route and like okay. his last known, the spots that he was last seen. They never found him. They never found a body. They never found evidence that he got off the bus anywhere. Which is like super weird. I mean, part of me, like the logical part of my brain is like, there has to be an explanation. Somebody knows something. Maybe he got off, bent over to tie his shoe, and got hit by a car behind the bus. Like, but you'd still find. But a body. you would, you would find something exactly. There would be some evidence somewhere of something. So to have it just like completely disappeared without a trace, with like something he had been, I'm assuming, holding just like in his spot on the chair, like. Yep. That's creepy. That is creepy. Like, his luggage is still there, so it's not like he got off to... I mean, he was 68. I don't think he's going to start a new life at 68 anyway, but it's not like he got off and just, like, walked away. Well, and it's not like he intentionally got off anywhere at that point. Like I said, like, then the only reason he would get off the bus would be something like he stopped to use the restroom or to get a drink or... But if nobody saw him get off, like, nobody's seen any, nor like, hide nor hair of him since, that's crazy. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. He's... Does, do we know, I mean, this might not have come up in any of your research. Do we know if he had any, like, was he showing signs of dementia or, like, something where at that age he would have become confused? Or... I didn't see anything, but I feel like his family wouldn't have put him on a bus alone if they were concerned. That's true. Because um, I was like, maybe he, I'm, I'm still sticking with the he got off somewhere to pee yeah. and just nobody noticed. But, like, I could see getting off the bus, being confused, somebody with nefarious intentions being like, let me take you home. And if you're just kind of a confused older person, maybe thinking that was all right. But, yeah, that's really... But also dementia is, like, a weird thing. Like, I feel like when people are in, like, a dementia episode and they're confused and they're not somewhere that they're used to, they're 
I don't want to say violent, but they're aggressive. My my grandmother, yeah. yeah, used to become aggressive. So, like, I don't think that if he was having a dementia episode, he would have gone with someone. And also someone someone would have noticed something weird. Like, Yeah, and I mean, this is entirely speculation on our part. There's no record or facts that he had any kind of mental, you know things that would have made him incapable of traveling, just kind of speculation as to what might have happened to him because it's just so bizarre that like to just disappear and have no sign of anything. I know. It's crazy. Okay. So now we're going to move on to the fourth person that went missing. This one is really sad. They're all really sad. But I was the- going to say they've all been kind of tragic so <laughs> um, far. But this one is a child, so it makes it sadder Aww. in some way. I-, I don't know why. But eight-year-old Paul Jepson, he went with his mom to relocate some pigs. Um, I guess they were pig farmers and they were relocating some pigs. Um, Okay, I mean, I'm sure that's a perfectly normal thing to do if you farm pigs. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, It's October 12th in 1950, which happened to be Columbus Day that year. So his mother, you know, got out of the pickup truck and turned away for like just a minute to relocate the pigs. (laughs) And when she turned back, he was gone. There was a massive search that began. They brought in bloodhounds to trace his scent. They were able to pick it up, but they lost it abruptly. It was kind of like they smelled it, and then it just stopped like there was a wall. Hmm. As if maybe he was taken into a car and driven somewhere. Did the mom have any, like, make any comments about there being any cars nearby? Or, like, maybe this is just my inexperience with Vermont, but, like, to me, unless you're on, like, a highway in Vermont, you're probably not facing a ton of traffic. Yeah, and, like, I don't know exactly where they were, but I also feel like he's eight years old. Like, it makes sense that he might, like, wander off the trail, but if he got lost, like, he's going to go, Mommy! You would think. I, I mean, <laughs> like, even even my fearless child, if he can't see me for a certain period of time, I'm sure that he would be like, Hey, Ma, where'd you go? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> As though you were the one that left. <laughs> right. <laughs> because... He's a special kind of child, that well, one. They're kids, and yeah. you like you're kind of unless a kid is determined to run away, he's not really like most kids aren't really looking to get lost. Right. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of speculation. Like he could have ran off and chased something. Um, someone could have came and picked him up in a car and that's why the bloodhounds lost his scent abruptly. That does seem the most likely at that point. Like what if he had run off, you would think that the bloodhounds would have continued to track him. Right. And I don't think it was near a water source, so it's not like they they lost it at, like, a water source. I think it was a road. But, yeah, his mother never heard him, you know, like, screaming. She didn't hear him calling for help. She didn't hear, like, him screaming as if he had fallen and hurt himself. And also, there was, like, it's a child, so it's, like, a huge search. Oh, naturally, yeah. And they didn't find anything, as per usual, with these disappearances was this like as big of a search as it was for paula it didn't give me exactly how many people um but i'm assuming that it was probably somewhere in the hundreds of people that were searching because again it's a child i feel like more people come out for a child makes sense oh the the local legend of the area says that his scent where the bloodhounds lost it was the exact spot that paula belden was last seen talking to what was his the name? The guy in the truck or the guy that was camping? No, the guy that was camping. That's creepy. <laughs> Ernest Whitman. So, supposedly. I don't know if that's true, but that's what they say. Also, another strange thing. He was wearing a bright red jacket. Is there, like, some kind of human-eating monster attracted to bright red jackets who eats humans whole? 
I mean, Bennington Monster, where are you at? Right. Yeah. So there, um, no, we, that's we solved creepy. it. We connected it. There we go. <laughs> but no, just to like completely go missing with that, like kind of joking about it but it's not really a laughing matter to go completely missing with no right without sign a trace. of anything and it's like multiple people all in the same area it's it's it weird really disturbing it like is. wow so i'm gonna avoid this triangle at all costs i mean part of me was like maybe we should go visit but yeah maybe not don't wear red don't wear red for sure another really creepy thing is that during an interview with the family paul's father said that quote the lure of the mountains may have pulled his son in. He said that Paul had talked of nothing else for days before he disappeared. Of the mountains? Of the mountains. Can we also talk about how Paul was last seen at the same place that Paula was last seen? Yes. In a red jacket. Yes. Everything about this is super creepy. What does he mean, the lure of the mountains? Like, this kid is eight years old. He did not elaborate. Did he that. just, like, read hatchet or the call of the wild and was now like obsessed like i don't know was he looking at the mountains going like i need to be up there was the dad ever a person of interest because that's a weird thing to say it is a weird thing to say i did not read anywhere that his dad was a person of interest i know this was the 50s right yeah so like i'm sure there the world was not just jumping to conclusion that it must have been the dad fair i wasn't alive in the 50s i don't know how things work it seems like they like had a lot more you know their family they wouldn't harm each other kind of attitude yeah and i feel like in like a smaller kind of town well and especially in a small town i feel like if there was something suspicious about the dad or the mom somebody would have been like well i know a little boy went missing but we weren't all, we weren't really surprised because uh have you met the mom yeah like it small doesn't town, sound like there was no small town gossip that i could find i'm so intrigued yeah. I never want to go near this trail ever, but I'm like really intrigued by it. I want to send a drone because I want to see it, but I don't actually physically want to set foot on it. <laughs> that would be fine. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go buy a drone. Maybe if we went in the summer, we'd be safe. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, that's so. But also this all happened between 1945 and 1950. So <laughs> that was going to lead to my next question. Has there been anything since then? Well, we still have one more that happened in 1950. And then I'm sure there have been things, but not really anything that they kind of like they've kind of connected these together in some weird way. Okay. And things have maybe petered off or not been as extreme since. Right. So the fifth and final person that we are going to talk about is Frida Langer. The 53-year-old was an avid hiker and survivalist. She spent a ton of time on and around the Long Trail. On October 28th of 1950, so this is like two weeks after Paul went missing. Of the same year. Of the same year. Frida was out hiking with her cousin, Herbert Eisner. And about a half a mile into the hike, Frida fell into a stream. So, okay. I mean, I could see that happening. Like, that doesn't feel nefarious. Like, you didn't see it, or there were some leaves, and you stepped down, and now you're like, oh, just kidding. I'm wet. So she told Herbert, you know, don't worry. I'm going to run back to camp. I'm just, you know, going to change my clothes real quick. Um, Her husband was there resting an injured knee. So, you know, it's not like she was running back to camp by herself. Like, there was someone there that, you know, would have seen her. She was going to change quick. She was going to, like, catch up with him, because, again, they were only, like, half a mile out. So they weren't really that far off from camp. But according to her husband, she never made it back to camp to change that day. So she got lost in half a mile. Which, I mean, half a mile on a mountain, I guess, maybe could feel like a longer span of of trail. But, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, you know, I guess between the husband and the cousin, they like call in, have a search party come out. It's about 400 people, including the Connecticut Coast Guard and the U.S. Army. To search off of this half mile of trail. To search this half mile of trail and the surrounding areas. So they find nothing. Not a thing. No trace at all. No trace at all. Not a fanny pack. Not like... Nope. A shoelace. Nothing. But... But this one gets a little weirder because unlike the other cases, six months after they finished the search, they found a body near the Somerset Reservoir. And this area had been a huge part of the search for Frida. They had combed it several times because I guess it was nearby where she went missing. So they'd been over it. Like they'd been over it with a fine tooth comb. They had checked everywhere, not found anything. Six months later, there's a body there. So unfortunately, they would identify it as Frida. So now her body is somewhere that they searched consistently for six months. So if it's a reservoir, I'm assuming it's water. Yep. Chances of her having been underwater? Possibly. I would also be interested to know, I know like climate change and things have made it so that weather patterns are different now than they were. But I would wonder, this was what, mid to late October? So. And it was a reservoir. It wasn't like a stream or a river or something. So I I don't think it was like an issue of her, you know, being in one part of the reservoir that they hadn't. I mean, I think they searched the whole like reservoir area. But yeah, um, I feel because there's not really like a current in a reservoir. But it wouldn't have been like frozen. Right. Likely speculation. But But, right. Late, like late October in New England. If it was really, really cold, maybe it would have been. But as a large body of water, like a reservoir usually is. Yeah huh weird so she's the only one of these missing people that has ever been found when they found her did it seem like like did you find anything in any of your research did it look like she had been in water for six months i didn't see anything that said there was evidence of like excessive water but she was severely decomposed okay which i mean from the very little that i know about decomposition i know that water can either accelerate it or like stop it so i mean yeah depending on like the temperature of the water and things in the water like yeah there's a bunch of different factors yeah so i mean possibly they but also she's a food source in the winter time i'm sure animals also right yeah like the coroner didn't say anything about like she was definitely in the water for this entire time kind Hmm. of thing so what do they think happened well they found her body and it gave them absolutely no answers they literally just have a body now which i guess is more than they have from like the other people but yeah but, but it's happened? still not helpful. The coroner said her body was so badly decomposed he couldn't even determine a cause of death. Wow. Or like piece together any events that led up to it. So, That's I mean, bizarre. even with the body, there's like no answers. They just can that put makes, it. Yeah. Oh, I, that it's like weird. raises so many questions though. Like we were talking about in the Mercy Brown episode how they knew that they had tuberculosis because of scarring on their bones. Like, how how can you not at all have any inkling of what happened to her? Right. It's you weird. You know what I mean? Like, if there was a blunt force trauma, you'd think there would be, like, a broken bone or, like, like there would be something somewhere mm-hmm. that would give you some indication. That's so bizarre. No, nope. Nothing. Which actually then makes you wonder if she, like, succumbed to the elements in, like, a totally... But, like, how did she totally get lost? Not totally natural, but, like... In a half mile. I'm so confused. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe if I was more into hiking I would have more insight I mean I guess it feels like it could be very easy to get turned around in the woods 
I mean, my husband and I hike in, like, a state forest. It's not humongous. It's super tiny. Yeah. But, like, like, they were on the long trail. Like, it's a trail. It's not, like, you're not in the middle of the woods. Well, that's kind of what I was thinking and kind of where I was going is, like, even sometimes where you come to an intersection of trails and there's one where you're like, is that actually a trail or did somebody just walk through there once and now it looks a little more like a trail but it's not really... But, like, this long trail seems like it has a reputation. It feels like as long as you stayed on the trail, you'd be fine. Yeah, and there's, like, a number of campsites that, like, line the trail. So, like, she was half a mile away from the campsite where her husband was. So I feel like if she fell or if something happened and she, like, screamed, there's a half mile between her and her cousin and a half mile between her and her husband. Well, there's less than because she's in the middle. And so, she's like, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So one of them. You would think. I would think would have heard some or someone would have heard something. So I'm going to once again go with my somebody had to pee theory where she walked (laughs) off the trail and then got turned around and couldn't get back. But that's only because my logical brain needs an explanation because honestly, that's so bizarre. Yeah, it's weird. That is weird. I just I wish that her body would have given them some answers like anything really serious, like not even a complete answer, just bone or something. So you had made a comment earlier that these ones appear to be connected. They don't, yeah. So they kind of like refer to them as like the five disappearances. Is it just because they I, happened within like a short period of time? Yeah, it's just because they they were all super suspicious. They couldn't find any like evidence of the person being left behind except for in the final one. I think they kind of lumped her in because it was suspicious and it kind of fit the bill of like going missing and not finding anything until they found it. And then makes sense. Yeah. Like also finding her gave no additional answer. So it was still really suspicious. Yeah. It's not like they found her and then figured out what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they kind of just lump all them in together just because there's not any one thing specifically connecting them to each other or any consistencies across their cases. But they're all just strange enough that they kind of just go, well, they got to be connected. (laughs) Have they made in the in the 70 years since, have they made any kind of connections? Any? Nope. Is there any kind of working theory? Like, nope. That's bizarre. Nothing. Whole lot of nothing. That's not like I'm I'm so beside myself and intrigued and like, yeah, man, that's nuts. It is. So that was the end of the mysterious disappearances. And one possible murder. (laughs) Yeah. Possible. One. Just one. Um, So now we're going to get into my final section, which is theories. My favorite. I love theories. I love theories. So there's obviously... Are these theories about the missing people? Are these theories about the monster? Do you have theories about all of them? It's mostly about the missing people, but it kind of encompasses the whole like strangeness of the area okay and these are theories these are not things that are confirmed right okay yeah. cool they're Let's all hear them. so there's like a ton of theories because there's so many things that happen it's a mountain there's so many things that can happen so the first theory is that although there's no actual evidence like we were just saying that's connecting the disappearances other than like the location and the time and you know some of the circumstances a lot of people think that Mitty, Paula, James, Paul, and Frida came across a serial killer in their travels. So the suspected... All of them? They think all of them did? They think all of them did. Okay. That's one of the theories, which 
I don't know. I would kind of count James out of that, but that's just me. Yeah, I was thinking, like, the guy on the bus doesn't seem like he makes sense. And the midi, because he was, like, in the middle of the woods, like, already doing a thing, doesn't seem like it makes sense. But, like, two people near the beginning of a trail and then somebody who wasn't too far from a campsite, those feel like they could be. So this supposed serial killer was referred to at times as the Bennington Ripper or the Mad Murderer of the Long Trail. Okay, that's awesome that he had enough of a reputation to have a name. See, I hate that we name them because it just feeds their egos. I mean, I love their names, but It does. Ego. I guess in my head, maybe he wasn't named while this was all... Well, I guess he would have been named while this was all happening. Yeah. Never mind. I was going to say if in retrospect that's what we called him, that would be cool. But you're right. They probably were calling him that in newspapers while these things were happening. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like this one makes... I guess the most sense out of really anything because there's there's really nothing else. This person could have been, you know, like a seasonal traveler. Maybe they go to Vermont for skiing in the winter months or something like that. To kind of put them there around yeah. the same time every year. Okay. So like that would kind of explain why everything happened between September and December. Like there was just like that specific time that everything happened. So like maybe they were only there for that part of the year. I also feel like if that was the case, they'd be a little less suspicious to the yearly residents because it's like they're not someone that's there often. Yeah, you're not like, hey, Jim down the street's house has been smelling kind of funky. Like, yeah, like he's not, you know, someone that's there all the time. They don't see him every day, which I mean, I guess is a good cover. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a serial killer. It could also go the other way where like because you're not there all the time, it's more obvious when you're there. But yeah. I but can I also, also see if like, you have, like, a ton of people that are just seasonal people that yeah. are just kind of background to you. Yeah, that's where I was going to go with that. Maybe I just don't pay enough attention to the people around me. I'm kind of terrible <laughs> at it, so I'm in the same boat. So this could also explain why Frida was found, you know, months after she went missing in an area that had been extensively searched. So something like he took her and then brought her back and, like, dumped her body kind of Yeah, so, like, maybe this person, you know, had a specific disposal method, which is why nobody else was found and something happened and he or she had to, you know, think quick and just, like, dumped it wherever. There's a whole bunch of places my brain goes with that. I could buy this theory. (laughs) And then... At the same time, that doesn't really make sense because the majority of them were in the vicinity of other people, like within hearing range of other people. Which that to me is the part that makes the theory unbelievable. Like all around a theory of like, here's this guy who comes up just for the winter months, decides that this is a good opportunity for him to fulfill some kind of sick fantasy and murder or kidnap some people. I can I can almost buy that theory. But I think to me, the fact that these people disappeared around other people like it seems like Frida's the only one who wasn't like in direct like vicinity of other people and even then she wasn't that far right but like Paul the little boy was like assuming from the story right near his mom yeah so for him to just go disappearing to be like oh yeah it was somebody passing through that feels a whole lot less likely I know like it's weird and like none of them left anything behind like they didn't kick off a shoe Right. Like, I mean, I guess maybe if this guy was like, had a little bit more time, I could see him like going back, making and... sure and cleaning up. But like, you know, you go to grab someone in your vehicle. I'm not a serial killer, so I'm not entirely <laughs> sure how easy any of this is. But like, I just listen to a lot of true crime. But like, you drag someone in your car, you notice they're missing, you know, a shoe. You you kind of get them stuck in the car, walk around the car real quick and grab it. But like, 
if you're grabbing some kid off the road not far from his mom, you're not going to have that kind of time. No. And, like, just, I think, pure happenstance and circumstances, you're not going to get that lucky for that to happen multiple times in a row. Like, okay, maybe you get the kid without a trace, but, like, that's really going to happen every time. That yeah, feels like, so one unlikely. of the adults, I feel like, would have been smart enough to, like, kick a shoe off and throw it or something. Something. Like, and, like... I would hope. I didn't find any reports anywhere of, like disturbed vegetation yeah, you'd think like there would be at least struggle. some indication somewhere like but no. of something it's weird the whole thing's weird that's an interesting theory though i think it's a theory that kind of it holds seems, a little water yeah but... it seems plausible it's not a straight up colander no the glass isn't full no it's not but <laughs> it's not empty either it's not empty either so some other people think that it's aliens I mean, I don't know a whole lot about aliens. I'm not entirely sure I believe in aliens, but I feel like that also would not be completely instantaneous and without any evidence. Right. And this would also kind of sort of explain like the lights and sounds, maybe the smells that have been reported since the beginning of colonization. Which like maybe that explains them, but that doesn't ex- like. It doesn't sound like Paul's mom was like, yeah, and then my kid disappeared and all I could smell was this weird smell. Like, no, it, for yeah. sure. But it would also explain why there were no bodies found because, you know, alien abductions, do they do they bring bodies back? I mean, they bring people back, but like if they kill someone, do they bring their body back? I don't know. We don't have anyone that's come back and said anything about it. <laughs> I'm not entirely convinced we have anyone that's been abducted either, but that's maybe a difference between you and I. But yeah, so I mean, that could explain some of like the the stranger parts of it. I mean, it's certainly a convenient uh, excuse for them. It is, yes. Possibly some kind of weird interdimensional portal. I don't know. I know you're still hanging I'm, on the portal. I'm hanging on the portal. I just, <laughs> I've been going down like a time travel rabbit hole and on Reddit. It's just no. <laughs> But yeah, so then the next theory would go back to the Bennington monster or the Bigfoot-like creature. Did he have something to do with it? Like, did he take them back to his lair? I mean, he at least leaves behind footprints. Right. There were no footprints. So there's that. But yeah, I don't... It's weird. So bizarre. Like, there's nothing that, like, fits comfortably into No, there really them. kind of isn't. <laughs> and I mean, I guess adding another theory to the, the pot here... They could have all just been completely isolated, poorly timed coincidences. They could have. Yeah, there's that too. And then the last theory that I have, which is going to be my favorite, and you're going to think I'm crazy, and that's fine. All right, it's lay it on crazier me. than an interdimensional portal. Is it crazier <laughs> than aliens? Possibly. Okay, let's hear it. So we're going to go all the way back to the Abenaki tribe now, from the beginning of our story. All right. So this theory is highly unlikely. Very unlikely. I don't know how much I believe it, but I love it. It's uh, Is this the theory somebody else has come up with, or is this just yours? No, no, no. This is the theory someone else. So this is like the Abenekis believed in this thing. Okay. Um, they believed in a man-eating rock of the mountains. A man-eating rock. <laughs> yeah. So again, not very likely, but what still my favorite. What sustenance does a rock need? <laughs> Obviously men, if it's a man-eating rock. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. according to the Abenaki legend, um, the rock would open and devour anyone who stepped on it. So, I mean, that wouldn't really explain John or Frida, but 
did Mitty, Paula, and Paul step on a man-eating rock? I don't know. This just feels like evidence that there's a sinkhole somewhere in the mountains. It could be a sinkhole. But again, what happened to James and Frida? I don't know. Hmm. I wonder if there will ever come a time in the future where maybe not right now because this land seems to be mostly on a state forest at this point. But I wonder if there will ever come a time in the future where these areas are developed for housing and things will come up when they're digging. Maybe. Because I do think it's hard to search the forest. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? It's trees. It's easy to get turned around. Have you really checked every inch that you thought you did? You know what I mean? I know. But I feel like with that many people and like with a lot of them had like the Coast Guard or like the Army or, you know, some kind of professionally trained, you know, leader. I feel like like I know that when they do search parties, they they have like maps of areas and they'll go over them over and over. They'll have different parties like they'll have different groups go over the same area, check for missing things. Like, I don't it's, it's weird. It's hard. I don't know. It totally is. I just like secretly hope that at some point in the future, some answers come up to what happened to these people. Yeah. And I mean, at this point, it's been 70 years, so it's probably unlikely, but like there's just so much mystery here and I I just want answers. I (laughs) always want answers and I don't like it when things are left unanswered. Oh man. I don't like that. I have no answers for anybody. I'm sorry. Please don't hate me. I don't think anybody's going to hate you. It's not your problem. (laughs) Don't come at me. (laughs) Oh man. I I just wish I knew. Yeah. And of course my brain is like, somebody knows something. Somebody knows what happened. Someone always knows what happened. But that could just open up a whole other can of worms of like cover ups and weird things. But we're not going to go there. We're not going to do that. That's awesome. Though. <laughs> this, this has been. Uh, is there more or no? That, that's this all has I got. been such a cool episode. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love all the mystery, and I just it makes me want to go like do my own research and figure it out. I mean, go for it. And if you find anything I missed, I would love to hear it. I probably won't because I think you're a better researcher than me. But (laughs) if I find anything, I'll let you know. (laughs) Um, I might end up going down the newspaper.com rabbit hole on some of these things at some point. And uh, maybe I'll get some updates then and we can do an update episode. But I'm I'm, I wasn't I didn't want to make this episode like four hours long. So I wasn't going down. I wasn't going down the rabbit hole. It's all good. So thank you for sharing about this because this is one of those things. I'd never heard about it. I did not know the Bennington Triangle was a thing. Yeah. I like had no clue. And I'm so excited to have learned this information. I know. It is exciting. But if you want to visit the Long Trail, you can. I wouldn't suggest it personally because it's creepy and weird. And definitely don't wear red if you do it. No. Um, you can also visit the ghost town of Glastonbury or anything else that we discussed in the episode it's all found within the triangle limits of southwestern vermont near the glastonbury mountain and the town of bennington which is where shirley jackson lives because i it's my favorite fun fact about bennington i know cc loves a fun fact (laughs) (laughs) i do and i love shirley jackson just you know if you decide to go remember to take only memories and leave only footprints and be safe um hiking is not especially in the mountains is probably not for the faint of heart no or the inexperienced definitely not but yeah thank thank you again this is a, a cool episode yay all right we hope you enjoyed today's look at the bennington triangle tune in next week for a tale about the gold brook covered bridge very hard to say uh you can find us on instagram twitter and facebook at myth and macabre 
If you have any stories you'd like to hear us cover or any questions for us, send us an email at mythandmacabre at gmail.com. Bye.